go again, Ozzy. Jamie Larnick. Interesting dude. Yeah, lovely fellow as well. Um, just looking at your notes here, I can see you've done a deep dive and prepared. And I have stolen a pad off my daughter that has a, with a few drawings. Oh, quite a nice drawings. drawing of yeah, an ice cream there. I've got a clear page, so um, that, that that's our two styles defined right there. Yeah. Let's, let's see where we end up with young Jamie. Oh, you're going to have to do better than that. You know, when I say the name Jamie Larnick, what springs to mind? Absolute asshole. <laughs> uh, no, Lo um, lovely, lovely. I'm actually looking forward to this. I've, no I've known him for a little while, but I don't know too much about his backstory. Um, again, what he was doing, I was overseas. So he's always been a big supporter of lo-fi. He's a great DJ. Um, yeah, this is this will be fun. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about his backstory. Um, the internet's great for that, isn't it? So, from what I know, he invested his student loan in a rave-up way back in the day. That sort of got him going. It was a New Year's party called N-Train. Um, he's one of the founders of Splore. I think you knew that. He was inspired by Nambasa Festival um, in the late 70s, Which early 80s. We've just, we've just informed you that's on uh, Lo-Fi member Dion's land where we've been throwing Golden Valley. That's where Nambasa was. Yeah, and uh, I was there hitting golf balls in the Golden Valley the other day, actually. It's quite therapeutic. Um, so I, I'd quite like to talk to uh, Jamie about the counterculture because um, obviously Nambasa Festival, you know, that looked pretty innovative um, for the time. Um, and I'm going to guess that, that some of that has carried over into the outdoor events that, that we see today, the many outdoor events that are within an hour or two of Auckland. Um, I'm sure Jamie's got a lot to say about that. And also the visual element. So he's always involved in things that are, are are about more than just music and that's not only in a spiritual community sense aesthetically there's a lot going on right that's my cue yes yes there is a lot going <laughs> on uh again your notes are really shining through here um i'm gonna i'm gonna dig deep with the man himself <laughs> right what else about jamie lana well Bogan seems to be a bit of a theme here. Doc Westy's Bogan Circus is something that he has used as a, as a performance moniker. Um, I mean, that in itself is a tremendous name. Yeah, you don't really know. You don't really have Bogans in the UK, but I think we'll, we'll have a chat about that. I was a Bogan as well. I think most Kiwis are Bogans. That's uh, a, a rite of passage for most New Zealanders. It's I, would, I would argue most New Zealanders are still pretty fucking Bogan. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I love, I absolutely love that word. Like, it's it's very, very funny. Um, yeah, what what else have we got? Well, the fact that he's a, a painter, right? You know, like, he, he's, he does quite a lot of art. I'm interested to know. I would call him an artist, an artiste, because to me, a painter is the guy I'm hiring to paint my bathrooms and what have you. So let's define the two. Uh, it's, it's a lot more than painting. It's pretty amazing what he gets up to. Yeah, I, th I think that's fair, yes. And he's got up to rather a lot in uh, Europe and around the world as well. He's got this travel log on his website where he has one of his own paintings at the top of each one as kind of like the hero image setting the scene. 
and then he regales us with some tale of hippie travel and reckless abandon in the 90s. Brixton, Bali, is the Israel one's particularly good, um, where he got attacked, where he got attacked, and his skull split open by the local mafia because they tried to fleece him for a, a performance fee or something. Um, yeah, we're going to struggle to keep this conversation down to an hour and a half, aren't we? Yeah, last night flew by two two and a half hours. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll there's a lot to go over. It's a pretty easy conversation as well. Let's we could always end up with a three hour podcast. <laughs> yeah, let's see about that. Not sure whether the editor, i.e., me, approves of a three hour podcast, or maybe it will be that good. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Um, yeah, he's a swashbuckling, creative dude. I think you could fairly say. Would you think he does? A... He looks like a swashbuckling dude as well. He does. Doesn't translate so well to audio that, but just take our word for it, folks. Right, that's Jamie. Let's get him on. This is Jamie Larnock. Um, uh, he's always been really supportive of Lofa. We have great chats when we're together. I've been saying I'm going to do this for ages, so it's good to finally do it. And we may as well kick off with what we were just talking about, which is uh, my argument is that I think this medium has more pull than a, than a mix CD these days. Uh, the, for me, I was talking to Mike about this before, the education from mix make CDs when I was in the UK, that, that was how I found out about DJs. This, there was yeah. no internet when I was there, or it was very, very new. Uh, and I didn't know what this music was and... And and it's I find it sad that that's the the power of that medium's gone, and also the income from it. Yeah, I mean, well. I, I think one that comes to mind immediately is is was a down tempo thing by Nick Warren, um, which was good old Nick Warren. Yeah, yeah, like and and it was it wasn't his, wasn't his banging stuff. It was a you know it was it was an off shoulder you know on the end of the end of the night or the start of the night thing and and that really appealed to me at the time and I didn't know anything about Nick Warren until I found that and then I did some you know did some more research and you know that worked right yeah and so that so that was sorry to interrupt that was that was exactly the same Nick Warren was the first for me as well mm. and I was like who the fuck's Nick Warren and my buddy was like he's just a DJ um, and he but makes some beautiful music amazing still, like. but it's funny we had there there, there was the this global underground series and there was one that I showed Mike and I was like dude did he let this get released and it was like <laughs> all yeah. train wrecks yeah. and it was like he just went like fuck it it's me live but every mix was like <laughs> terrible wow and it was like dude what, what was it did he actually we can, to but it? we can forgive him now, yeah of course yeah, yeah. Well, yeah um, i imagine imagine that someone like nick warren with a career the length of his is his being through a lot you know he'll he'll have seen the full scope of of um you know crash and hype and you know the whole the whole gamut you know but the only reason the reason that i still release mixes or pick, put mixes on mixcloud is because I probably get to play live like two percent of the music that I buy. Like yeah. I've got a, I have a problem. I have a music buying problem, and, and it, <laughs> like, like I, I spend like so much of my time kind of scouring, or you know, the the the, the latest releases, and then get so taken by them. You know, there's this thing that um um what. That Terence McKenna once talked about being um, really important to humans is novelty. 
right? And, and like when we find uh, it's, it's a really big part of our drive to become modern humans, you know, like this curiosity that we've got and that so we get a reward a dopamine reward when we have novelty and finding that new track you know finding that like little piece that gem even if it you know you're not going to play it on the dance floor so i've got to have it anyway and so i just kind of like the i don't know like what is it something like seven thousand tracks or something in my collection at the moment and i'm playing a dozen at when I play, maybe sixteen or something like that in an hour and a half. Yeah, it's that's, about, that's, about sixteen, you know. That's the me. That's the, I call it the music addiction. That's the yeah. addiction. Yeah. And I always say to people when they're like, "Can you?" Because people are always like, "Can you teach me how to do that?" And it's like, "Dude, I can teach you the skills really easy, but it's that By thirst music. and the passion." Yeah. That's if always you, the. If you don't have that, you can't be a DJ. Yeah. It's that that makes DJ. Your crate digging and you and your thirst and how deep you want to go is, is what makes you as a DJ. So it's always the advice I give too. Eh? It's like just start buying music buy waveforms or AI Fs and, and, you know, get a collection and then you can start mixing. Yeah, yeah I find, with me, with mix, mixes, I, I, it's, it's funny because our world reflects comedians' worlds a lot. And so yeah. comedians will tour their, like, their, their hour and then polish it and then they'll have their bits and then they'll record it and then that's done and then they start again. Yeah. And I do that with like, I'll have like a seat, like usually after every summer, I'll have my, my summer summer tunes, my big tunes, I'll throw them on a mix CD and then I'm like, I'll probably never play them again or mm. not for another five years or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I started, so I started, uh, must have been like 2019, I just decided that I'd start recording stuff and just putting it up as a service to people, you know, like this, this music is no good sitting on my hard drive doing nothing, you know. So I put it on Mixcloud, um, and and just let people find it if they wanted, you know, push it out on my socials or whatever. And then after after the first lockdown, I started getting a lot of feedback from people talking about how important those mixes were to them over the lockdowns and. It, really touched me you know it's one of those it was one of those things you know and I still get it I still get people talking about them or you know and it so they, it, there is still a function for it and but it's not the same it's not the same level of attention grabbing promo that it once was yeah you know? they cannot be because there's not a budget behind it mm. and no one's paying to hear it mm. are they mm. I mean Mixcloud and Soundcloud do have certain paid services but Basically, people assume that a mix that's uploaded online is free, and that's it. There's mm. not really any going back from that, is there? No. It, it, just because it's worthless price-wise doesn't mean it's worthless. Though. That's a, Indeed. The, the whole thing with the lo-fi mixes is we, we, get a, we can get a gauge on who's popular, who's getting better. Um, we can, we, we, like, basically, we, use, we say to DJs, use it as a bio. Like, record it for us. We'll write up, write up for you. Get a photo on there, and then if someone asks you, you go, "Oh, here's the here's the mix," and it works really well like that. We and we can see when someone does a, a killer mix, they they go back through the back catalog and it lifts all of the the plays. Like, and we also find that the ones that are like short, sharp, they die off, and the ones that don't catch on at first usually end up being the big the big hitters, sustainers. Yeah. Mm. 
Ah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, actually, that leads on to something I'd like to cover with you. Am I right in saying that you've just been to a festival and performed, but you had to pay for the ticket? Yeah, that's that was right. part of the ethos. Yeah. Let's let's talk about. I that. mean, it, it's different, right? Um, I mean, I don't want to oversell it, um, but it's being different to any festival that I've really ex- that I've experienced in the last thirty years. The vibe is similar to some of the very early, very early parties or raves where kind of came away feeling like you'd just been connected to a community that you hadn't really felt connected with beforehand. And that, like that, that doesn't happen that often. You know, there's, there's a, a series of things over the years that have done that. And then, then they tend to kind of, um, become le- that sense becomes less overwhelming, you know, but but with this it's really pronounced. They're like, well, this is a community. This is five hundred people getting together to co-create and collaborate to create an an important event, and the you know the the kitchen is just as important as the dance floor in this party. It's got like. A massive lounge room. It's got storage for all the food. There's personal food and shared food, and um, and there's people in there, who, and their, who their thing is cooking. You know, there are people out there who take just as much pleasure in putting together a meal, and my partner's one of them, as what as I do putting together a mix. You know, and, and seeing people enjoy that food, and that's their that's their buzz. You know, and it's, and it's actually really important. You'll always find them in the kitchen at parties. You know, the, the, the kitchens are really important, you know, and 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 just being able to walk in there and be able to go, oh, I'll be able to, I'll pick up a plate. There's going to be something I can eat. There's fruit. There's like a, a soup that's just been served. There's a, there's a salad. There's like a, you know, this whole range of beautiful food that keeps coming out. And it's like lush. You know, there was there was platters of fruit being on the dance floor, and you know, like uh, um, uh, gelato ice creams coming out. Amazing performers wherever you looked. The art was astounding. Yeah, it was just something else, you know. And it's it's something about people committing to it and not consuming it. Mm-hmm. You. I don't like the term punter because it implies that there's that people are there to be kind of a service to you as a as you know as as the organizer or something like that you know there's a community and this is this is a tr- this was a true example of of community would you say that this is just a trickle down from burner culture which is kind of it's we musically it's it's trickled down it's become more and more mainstream um, I personally think that the burner ethos that it started with is gone. You can never have that ever again. Not that I was there, but f- from from a from a consumer point of view and a promoter's point of view, like the the we're all one on a dance floor. We're going to look after each other. It's 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 too, it's impossible to not be commercialized. Mm. Well, um, anything that's a certain scale. Well, if you're below a thousand, I think it's it's easy. But even to... that, I, I mm-hmm. yeah, not. I used to think that my ethos 
was a burner ethos, but I've just now actually, it's just being a good person. Yeah. And so I find a lot of, not all, and I'm not slagging off the burner community, let's be very clear here, people. Uh, <laughs> we would love for you to keep listening in. Uh, I find that there's a, uh, uh, there's a lot of shitty behavior covered up with spiritualism and and if you need to go to a festival to be a good person for a weekend, you need to fucking take a look at yourself. Yeah, so like you should live that life every day of the, day of the week. Absolutely, and like this, there are a lot of burners there, and I know, I'm, like, I know a large portion of that audience personally. You know, like the five hundred, there's a lot of them that are actually are, are friends of mine, and you know, there was a lot of the people who I enjoy their company and outside of festival life, like, um who are performers or artists and stuff though you know part of that so i guess i'm saying yes the burner thing is was is an aspect of it but i also know the history and the origin of that and the origin of the of the it's multi-generational the people that are organizing it's primarily organized by women not men which is not 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 a thing but um it's 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 interesting because it does stand slightly aside from the normal festival culture inside this country um but i know i know the philosophy of the people who started it and why they started and what they where they come from but um but that ethos that you're talking about it it came before burning as well before the burns so in 1992 there was this american guy i met and ended up touring through new zealand with before in the three, like about three months before I put on my first big party, which was in train, and about nine hundred people came along, and um, he all the while he was telling me about this kind of the ethos that they were working with in San Francisco at the time, and it was the TAS, you know, the Temporary Autonomous Zone, um, you know, it's like creating a safe space for people to express themselves or a safe space to explore other states of consciousness, um, uh, you know, where where the norms of society kind of disappear for a little while and you become this bubble. And, and, and where they used to talk about um, keeping everything flat, you know, no, no hierarchical structure, so the DJ's not on a stage, the DJ... We used to hide the DJ, you know, we used to... We used to disguise the DJ tent so that the DJ could see the dance floor but it wasn't elevated and that slowly changed and I I don't rue that but it was different it did change things you know and, and like so that that culture it is that had starting points much earlier than than the burners you know like and I think I think what we're seeing is like a whole heap of threads coming together and events like that I think a real like the one that I went to on the last week uh, was. I think where we're going to see things moving. Smaller, smaller events. People are going to become passionate about being involved. So I'm interested to know. Um, we have higher risk outdoors, higher costs of land. Why is it that these events where artists will play for free or very little money community events why do they seem to happen outdoors more than indoors i think i think that that this that not having those walls around you not having security guards standing there looking over your shoulder not having 
the having to deal with the urban environment allows people to relax a bit more. There's something that happens like after the first night or after the second yeah. night. Then then people have relaxed into it a little bit. They've got the they've shaken loose a little bit. They've worked out the kind of you know the stress that they're holding in their shoulders. They've kind of and then and they've relaxed into it and then they can then something happens you know and there's also something about i used to love dancing from one side of the dance floor to the other in an outdoor environment and just just that space you know and i got i'm very expressive dancer and 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 i love it it's one of the key things and that i love in my life has been has been like really dancing and losing myself to the music for as long as possible and you can't, I can't do it in a club. I've never been able to. I've never been able to hold that. That we 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 find that it's it's also like um, not an age thing. It's like an experienced clubber thing. You grow out of going to clubs. Like the whole thing with Lofa was to take it out of club land because there was nothing. There there was well there was festivals, but there was nothing in between. Uh, and a lot of our clientele were people that started going out again because it was like, wow, well, now there's something to go out to. It costs a lot to get babysitters. The tickets cost a lot. Your, your fun stuff costs a lot. Um, alcohol and whatever. Um, and But they're not going to go to Inkba. You know, it's not going to spend $500, mm. $600 to go to Inkba. Give them something. It's got to be something good. And generally that's outdoors in the, in the sun. Um, so... Most of your musical career has been outdoors. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I first started on I first started buying music in '94, playing at parties, electronic music in '91, and then to get two turntables um, and a mixer together, I had to put on a party. So the first proper big party that I put on was the first time that I actually had two turntables and a mixer and I learned how to mix in front of a crowd live <laughs> you know what's that saying no no less a show of faith than a leap into the unknown you know like but I knew what I wanted to do I knew what I wanted to do and I knew there's a, like I mean, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors with DJing anyway right like you're playing someone else's music. If you're picking good songs and you're putting them on one after the other and you're working out how to blend that track into that track, you've got a lot of leeway, especially when you're starting. Yeah, and I mean, like, there, I come, the world, the outdoor music scene that I come from, first of all, like, was influenced by the Goa um, sound of the early 90s, which eventually got called Goa trance, but we just called it Goa music to start off with, which is, and that kind of blended into this side trance that is known now. But it's it, the sound is so radically different. But there was a philosophy, and and it was it was a about those deep psychedelic journeys that people go on individually on the dance floor for hours and hours at at an end. And they go into a trance-like state. If the DJ is doing their job right, people can be transported and have peak moments that possibly change their lives. They get massive insight. I mean, we know now we can actually be a little bit more open about 
psychedelics because of the the renaissance that's been happening but we know from the studies that have been done that that if you've got a if you've got a problem that you're working on it might be an engineering problem or it might be art or it could be anything like that and if you've got the chance to to um, disengage and dance all night sometimes that stuff resolves itself without you actually thinking about it you know it's it and that's a the DJ has a responsibility to keep the zone that people want to be in heading in the right direction you know and that that's that that's that there was a there was a philosophy around that at the time and it, and that's always stuck with me that, that that's a real it's it's a, it's a duty as well as a privilege so you ended up in goa but i never went i oh, never went you didn't no the people who came and at the same time as I was starting the entrain party, which is you know, being called New Zealand's first rave, and I think it's primarily because it's the first one that was big and we sold tickets. There would have been outdoor parties that had happened before that. It, it's like I don't not claiming that we like were the first outdoor dance party in New Zealand, but it's been called New Zealand's first rave. My student loan paid for it, <laughs> and um, which, which I took, which took nearly fifteen years to pay off. It was worth it. Um, the, at the same time as this group of people, this young young Kiwis who were a friend group, we decided what, that we were going to do it. At the same time, a group of people came from the UK, New Zealand, Australia to Golden Bay at the same time and decided they were going to do something. And we we knew we, we ended up you know meeting each other socially and we're like, okay, well let's do it. At this, let's do this together. And they bought a lot of the Goa influence and the, so the discussions and the and the stuff that was happening around it. And I'd already gone donkey deep into into, you know, Terence McKenna's writing and um, you know, Food of the Gods and and various other kind of um, philosophies around <clears throat> alternative culture, you know, reading things like the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe or um, you know, that that I guess I was quite bohemian and esoteric as a, in my early 20s so so what was it you had seen in new zealand that sent you down that bohemian esoteric route well i mean yeah so i mean i guess it's the way i was raised and then my life experiences in my early childhood um my folks were hippies surfers and hippies and you know we were doing a little doing the self-sufficiency thing at home um, doing the civil rights protest and save the you know save the whales and friends of the earth, and then I got taken to Nambassa a couple of times around seven eight years old, and that for me was pivotal, seeing people celebrating together. A lot of people too. Nam the the Nambassa was the our Woodstock. It's still the biggest festival to this day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think they had seventy thousand. Seventy five was the last one. Yeah, yeah. And and that's that rained as well. That was the one that the bridges got washed out, and I think there was actually loss of life. But um, do you think that was God telling everyone to go home and have a shower? <laughs> Peace. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was Can't quite. Stop partying, it was, guys. It was quite eye opening for a seven eight year old boy oh, to see yeah. see like 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 boobs that weren't um, belonging to my family you know, like, and, like, and but at the same time you know like like there was a kid zone that catered to us there there was i i experienced american indian 
Native American culture where was people they were talking about the philosophy. I experienced a call robbery. You know, there was the um the there were all sorts of interesting things that were eye opening and I was and and as well. My dad woke me up at like ten o'clock at night on the Saturday night and took me out to sit on the side of the hill looking at the main stage to hear Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee play. And that's like that's like hearing Howling Wolf or or you know, Muddy Waters or Big Mama Thornton or something like that. One of those, the blues legends, like absolutely legends. And that that really stuck with me. I was like, wow, this is this is awesome. And then when I got to about 18 or 19, I was, there was nothing like that. It was that I was, that I could, that we could go to. There was one thing that came up, was called Strawberry Fields in Raglan. And it was in the very early 90s. But it still um, wasn't right for me. Didn't, didn't didn't Black didn't Black Sabbath play in Nuts at, at Sweetwaters? Is it Natia on the way to Rags? Yeah, they yeah. I think that was Sweetwaters. Yeah, it was Sweetwaters, and that was it was so Natia is close to um, Thames. So, but it was where, where was that? It was in Narawahia. Narawahia. There was Narawahia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is which is. This backcountry tiny town, uh, which is why, like, weirdly, I was driving through there one day, and on my playlist there was, um, it was Black Sabbath in Narawahi, and I was like, what the fuck, have I linked to something? Like, I'm in Narawahi. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Another message from the gods. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, that was the alternative. They're, like, the hippies were doing Nambasa, and the, um, um, and, you know, Sweetwaters was kind of the, the more bogan um, end of it, you know, like that was more the mainstream festivals. And, and so, what was there? What was because to me, the the big day out was was every Kiwi's first mm. first festival, and I think it's sad that it's no longer there. It was my entrance into festivals. Um, what was between that and big day out? Was there anything, or was it? Um, well, there was there was one thing that like so the guy the people who had who had been doing Sweetwaters um, there was a guy named Jamie McVale and um, Lindsay Mace was one was involved as well and Lindsay ended up being part of um, Splore um, as Splore grew and needed to kind of get better at its um, kind of office systems and um, and they it was called Neon Picnic. And it it, uh, um, it fell over at the last minute because of Portaloos. They had Ladysmith Black Man Barzo sitting in South Air- in in the main airport in um, uh, trying to leave um, South Africa. They had um, Elton John. Never heard of him. <laughs> uh, um, uh, and uh, what's that guy? Um, Elvis Costello. Sitting in yeah. Sydney Airport, and so they were all waiting for their checks to be um, presented, and that couldn't happen until the um, council had given sign off, and the council wouldn't give sign off until the toilets were there, and the to- they didn't have the money to pay for the portaloos to be up front, oh. and and it fell over, it fell over on the loo. And good old council again. The, the, good the whole, old the council. Whole, and it was. It was. Oh so wow. That's, I had actually, like, so Jamie was. A, what um, year is this? Um, 
Like somewhere, somewhere in the, let's see, where I was like, I was in that house. So it must have been a, when I was about 14, so maybe 84, 85. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, and you know, it fell, it fell over, maybe even slightly earlier. But yeah, and 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 it had family friends. I didn't know the story until actually ended up working with Lynn's um, at a um, show called Queer Nation. I was um, cutting video for them. She told me the story. I remember Queer Nation. Oh, yeah. Wow. And that was that was actually why I made a point of introducing Lynn's to um, to explore. And um, and knowing that she actually had this, the experience to run these events, and she actually was a big part of that explore becoming a bigger event. So yeah, I, I was going to ask about what the authorities were like in the eighties and nineties. There was some really funny quote of I think the last the last ever or maybe penultimate um, Nambasa where the the council noted in their meeting nudity drugs and occult heathen religion <laughs> and so is this just is the fact that there were very few events post nambasa until you started doing what you were doing is this a classic case of authorities and backlash or is there more yeah, to it i don't know i think i think there was i think there was like Social conditions played a lot more to it than that. Like, like there was a lot of smaller things happening all over the country. There were blues. There used to be. There was a site called Prana. Um, well, there was in um, Oporturi, which used to be a blues fest. So there was a there was a bikers blues fest that happened, and and there's 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 been blues parties or blues festivals, little ones that have been happening all over the country. So during the during the eighties and things like that, but they never. They never popped up above that regional small party, you know, like it was usually contained by a, a by geography or a so, or social groups. There used to be there used to be things like the um, mushroom ball in in um, in New Plymouth, which was a, a crazy punk thing that happened every year, which I was a bit scared to go to. It had actually quite a cra- quite a mad reputation. Well, what about when you started the gathering? Was that? Well, I didn't. That, I didn't start the gathering. The you were entrain, part, Yeah, yeah. Entrain, That's and then right. It became the it became the gathering. Kind so of was by that default. council approved, or was it all private? And then eventually, we needed... did the first one without telling anyone what we yeah. were doing. Um, but we also, um, you know, made a point of telling people that they were alcohol-free events, and they they were they were. We discouraged alcohol, um, and that was partly to do with my own personal experience at the. That the hands of kind of alcohol fueled violence, and and you know I was probably to my my mouth probably ran ahead of my ability to run away, and and um, and so you know I'd, I'd I'd get into trouble with guys, and I didn't really yeah, really didn't like alcohol because of it. I didn't like the way that it affected our culture, and so when we were going about doing these parties, we made a point of making them alcohol free, and when we carried on with that, the council responded to it really well so the second and third years that we did it for those big ones and we did others um off the new year's eve as well but they would respond really well to us saying that they were alcohol-free events 
so I think with the alcohol thing, it's not that it's not the alcohol that's the problem. It's the, it's how it's the culture. That's the culture around it. And so with everything we do, and Om, um, you treat people like adults. They act like adults. Yeah. That, there's you can take your own booze to Om. There's never any trouble. But there's an expectation that you're not going to get you're not going to get um, lathered. You mm. know, like the, like it's a different it's a different culture. Yeah, different now. culture. It is a different culture now, and I actually think it sits pretty firmly with the with the party scene we like we've changed the way that we behave socially the older party scene the, the older, older party scene. scene the younger part this is part of the problem um we get painted all with the same brush and the young party scene is just the same they fight they're figuring out how to yeah. drink but yeah. also all the all the their all alcohol the, consumption is down compared to our generation though yeah but it's it's how you they can't handle it right. they're still causing trouble like um and part of it's a lot of it's how it's targeted at them. Like the drinks are targeted at them. They're cheap, mm. sugary drinks, happy hours. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of that, a lot of that's about kind of um, expectations and and communication about expectations. You know, I don't, I don't think there's like something like. There's a few rite of passage parties, you know, like you were talking about the big day out. You know, the big the big day out was was you know alcohol fueled as well, you know, and and, and it was madness. It know? was, and there's there's a few other. Um, but again, um, I would argue, it was only so alcohol fueled because it was go drink in your cage, and no one did that. Everyone smuggled in hip flasks of heavy liquor. Sure. So everyone was liquored up to on the heaviest stuff because they couldn't get a beer 4% or whatever yeah. uh, I would argue like if as explorers now um, you just open it up and be like look you can drink drink responsibly and people treat do. people like adults yeah. yeah and but the thing the thing is is that is that is that what we need is a kind of a headspace where the older ones kind of gently correct the younger ones when the behavior is going in a direction that's that doesn't work with the culture that's not part of the kopapa you know like if if there's a group of young guys throwing their cans over their shoulders and just kind of to not caring you kind of got to have a little word with them and be willing to put up with a little bit of friction just to kind of correct and and and, and it's the same in dance floors where guys are being a um are not uh, giving the freedom to women to express themselves without expecting to be touched, you know. And when that happens, they need to be called out on it. We, but we know that now. This is the funny thing: is like we, I never knew we. I had to pull anyone up because I didn't behave that way, and yeah, exactly. I thought that was enough. Yeah. It's only very recently, within the last few years, that it's like, dude, that's not enough. Mm. Uh, and also, I was so fucking naive, like. I, because I didn't do it, I didn't see it. I turned my blinkers on, or I didn't want to see it. And it was only when I actually asked um, my wife about it, like, and she was like, "Yeah, I always get, always get groped or t- mm. uh, unwanted touch, or yeah. have to walk in dark streets with the keys in between my fingers." And I was like, "Fucking yeah. hell!" Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's th- this disconnection of alcohol from outdoor DJ-led events is something that I'm really curious about because it's it's just not like that in the UK. Um and in the UK when when we're when festivals are put on, it's just an assumed part of the business model mm. that to underpin the creativity, 
you will sell a lot of booze. Mm. Um, and so, do you think the reason for this, do, do you think that you and your crew are one of the main reasons why this is a habit now, i.e. the authorities are much more likely to leave an outdoor event alone if there's no alcohol being sold? I mean, the, the, the bar is still a big part of the, um, the mainstream events recipe for success. It's, uh, you, need, you need to sell units yeah this, somehow this, this is the thing you either need you either this is the agreement you, you have a venue you take the door the venue takes all the bar or uh you hire that space and you get a cut of the bar it's fucking it, hard it's more to, the indoor yeah, indoor things yeah. it's hard to make it's mm. hard to throw an event of scale just on door yeah. charge so i mean like but you guys are doing it outdoors. There's things are two, three thousand that are doing it. Eight thousand. Yeah, I mean, you know, that like to start off with, um, Splore didn't have a bar, but it needed to to be to be able to be sustained. You know, and there's there's a little bit of there's a little bit of um, you know, you if you are still doing things responsibly, then then it, then it's worthwhile. People like having a drink. You know, and just because I don't like having a drink doesn't mean that you shouldn't. On that note, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, the and and it, you know I, I, that's 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 expected and respected, and and at the smaller events that are like you know I personally, I love I love the the um, the freestyle events, the stuff that where somebody's got a bit of land somewhere and they want to have a gig there themselves. It's somebody's, it's a special occasion or something like that. Those are my favourites. You know, where where you, you go and you chip in and stuff like that. Yeah, people will roll up to the side of the party with a big chilli, you know, and, and they'll start making making beautiful cocktails to share with everyone. Well, they'll, they'll have a cold one because it's a beautiful hot day. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's the it what needed to change, and I think it has is is the reliance on alcohol for a good time. Yeah, interesting. It's been replaced with other things. I, I think the the I think that the, this new generation are a lot more health conscious, and some of it's backlash against us. Like you don't want to do what your parents did, and if the parents are all partying then you're just like, well, I'm going to do the opposite of that. No, absolutely. But, uh, but what's to say with the generation after that will be like, oh, my parents were so straight. Let's fucking get like that. Um, Although, hey, I'm actually hearing, check this out, man. Like, I've got an 18-year-old. She's telling me that, that there are crews out there that are doing, they're going and parking their cars in at um, Cornwallis, leaving all their gear in the car. Walking out or driving out, so that when the when the park ranger comes down, has a look around. There's no one there. It's just a car that's being left behind. They lock up. Then they walk in, move their gear out. It's game on. And and they've got their own. They've got their own DJs. They've got their own thing going on. I'm not hearing anything about it. You know? Well, you've just fucked that up because this podcast is going to be very popular. So, uh... But you know, it's like for me, that's fascinating. You know, like you know, of course, I don't want they they don't want me to hear about it. I'm a fifty year old, you know. But it's it, what it's fascinating that it's happening and that it's being kept on the DL. 
That, and that'll I love always it. happen. That's I what makes it. that's what that's people's right of path. That's their story, man. That's the story. They're gonna be telling that story on their own podcast in twenty years. Those yeah. are the things that make all this special. Like those are the stories that I have about how when it started and what we used to do and what mm. and, but also karma, fuck man. Like now we're throwing events and trying to keep some fucking order and sometimes people are stealing our art and pulling down mirables and I'm like, Hey hey and it's like Fuck man, I okay. a lot well, I've, worse. I've got a I've got a stealing art story for you. Okay. Did you steal all our Barbie dolls from? <laughs> <laughs> no, so we we like the for, from the in train parties and the crew that we were working that we that were putting all these on. There was always a lot of us, but there was a lot of visual artists. We used to do we used to get warehouses and get massive pieces of canvas like um, you know two point eight meters tall, like um, like. 15 meters long and we'd, we'd get we'd spray them all with um, fluoro and make these huge big banners look they're really well presented and we made this two this this it's a diptych is two isn't it um and was it it was not a diptych anyway two of them <laughs> and um and we kind of just freestyled it it was these big landscapes and we had like kind of space age technology drawn in there and there was stonehenge kind of stuff and big mountains and sunset amazing clouds and just this big landscape and we had a party down at queen's wharf um when like this must have been about 95 and in the middle of the night well in the morning we saw that the painting was missing and uh, um, so we're like, okay, well, there's nothing we can do about that. It's gone. And then about three months later, or less actually, six weeks later, we ended up in Bali and we're on our way to Europe and we're doing a tour. I was in a, we had a micro circus and we were doing like psychedelic illusion shows. And I love how we just threw that in. Oh, we were doing a micro circus. Yeah, yeah. yeah I used As to. You do. I used to ride a unicycle and still walk and do uh, um, do fire and and we used to do stuff like we get dressed in black and have a black stage and then have fluoro props so like it looked like there's giant butterflies and dragons coming out over the audience and stuff. It was quite mad. And um, you don't say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, so we ended up at Bali at this party um, in. Um, Nusa Dua, and the the in the morning, it's amazing sunrise, you know, just this really cool party, and we were there, and this this guy that we'd been talking with and hanging out with came over, and he dropped five hundred dollars American in the lap of one of one of the guys that we were partying with, and he goes, "I, I stole your painting in Auckland." <laughs> And it's it's on. Well, that'll be a thousand dollars, thank you. Maybe yeah, he, he, under, he, he totally under underchanged us, but short changed us. But <laughs> but he he sent it to his home in Kenya because we'd somehow painted this mountain that reminded him of Mount Kenya, and he had this home on the foothills of Mount Kenya. And he had to have the painting. You know, it, was, oh, it, was, it was mad. And the other thing is, I mean, we lost. There was at, at that party, we also lost a lot of. Um, we borrowed stuff from a friend that he'd had, like, um, um, at the time it was called Space Tribe, they'd still, Space Tribe uh, um, um, hangings, and he'd bought them from, you know, like they were repetitive, they were 
commercial product. But we lost about three of them, and it cost us 500 bucks to replace them. So we just ended up handing that straight over to him. But you know, that's a shame. You know, like like you you get a big party, and then it gets hectic. You know, like I I've had used to do stuff at Splore. We used to install a um, interactive photo booth. And it was great for a lot of, for several years, and then it kept getting trashed at Saturday night at about four in the morning, or Friday night at about four in the morning, you know. And you know, so we just stopped doing it. Yeah, and it's inevitable. It's something just, of a certain size. Yeah, it's, it's harder to keep order. Size, always, always. Unless no, it's, unless it it's all your friends yeah. or friends uh, of friends. Or friends. Once of, it's friends of friends yeah, of friends of. Yeah. It's inevitable. It's, you just got to roll with the punches. Like things are going to get broken and taken. It, just, yeah. it is what it. Uh, fuck! I stole stuff and broke stuff. It you just need to make stuff idiot proof as, as part of it, you know. And, and, and after, yeah, but then yeah. again, that 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 undermines some of the creative yeah, value, does, which is why going to a party like a five hundred people party where it's basically. A, a culture it's not it's not a it's a group of people who work together it's not a commercial event you just don't get that stuff happening somebody might walk away with with somebody's jacket by accident yeah but, so, so yeah something happens from throwing festivals something happens when there's a collective of many people they become idiots and i don't mean this on the dance floor and i don't mean this in general it's like if you put signposts up and it's like this way and you have like two people uh, outside of a festival, they'll look at the sign, they'll take a minute and they'll go, I don't quite understand the sign, <laughs> but it seems to be telling me to go this way. But when you get hundreds or thousands of people, they'll be like, I have no idea what the sign means, even though it's clearly says this way and I'm going to go I'll go way. that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If something happens when there's lots of people, it's like mass hysteria or something. It's like a, people just go, I can't think. Um, or it's like, I'm so excited to party, I'm not going to take this like time to figure out what I should actually be doing. Yeah. Right, the circus. I want to go back right, to okay. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, come on, where did you end up? Tell me more. I mean, so... Um... As part of the what we were doing with the those early in-train parties, we made a really big emphasis on performance and performance art. So right from the start, um, there was always decor, there was always somewhere sheltered and warm that you could get out of the elements and be comfortable. There was always food available. Um, there was always kind of a, a kind of a, a safety net of sorts, you know, so somebody who was going to be able to deal with people who were having a hard time. Um, and there was always performance. So there was, like, right from the early in-trains, the very first one, there was stilt walkers. I mean, God, thank God those people were there, you know. They just brought this element of carnival to the party and it just transported it from being dancing in a field to being something unique some sort of event you know <clears throat> and um so at that party this guy named rich turner turned up and he'd been in he'd been in goa and rich was a very experienced performer he used to do it wasn't manumission it was one of the earlier one of the earlier club nights in in london and he was like a he was like a go-go dancer and and um and had spent time doing fire. He was a really good juggler. 
So he arrived in New Zealand and on his way down south, pretty sure it was uh, in Hikorangi, he saw some guys doing long poi and went, wow, I've got some fire wick in my bag, you know, because he, he, he had jug, fire juggling clubs and, you know, you need to be able to replace the wick. And so he made some poi and he turned up at this first end train party uh, New Year's Eve 93, 94. I think, 93, 94. And at about midnight, he busted out what, for many people, was the first ever fire poi that they'd seen. And then by the end of the summer, you know, and all of us, like, who'd grown up here, were like, well, we, we got exposed to it, you know. A lot of us even got taught how to do poi rudimentary at, at primary school. So it was just a natural step, you know. So we, so by the end of that summer, fire poi was everywhere, and so we took that into our into our, our our events, and then we were making fluoro poi. So you know, we're putting up the fluoro lights, and I was aware of this black light theatre company that had been in um, in Prague that had done these shows where they would get dressed in black and have a black stage and then they would do object manipulation and so we kind of took that and ran with it and so by the time we went abroad as a group um and like so i i'd i'd taken all of our events and created marketing documents to send to all the festivals to get us bookings and we we ended up getting bookings at Brixton Academy in the fridge with Other Land and with um, Return to the Source. So you were at the fridge in the 90s? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. uh, totally. Brixton Academy, which is in Brixton. Yeah, oddly enough, the fridge is just down the road from the Brixton Academy. Um, But, um, yeah, so, you know, doing, we did did shows there and put up decor, um, you know, and and we did, we did um, the Vouv, which was was a, massive um, Goa trance party and we did other stuff in, in Austria and Switzerland and um, in Germany and yeah so we kind of got around Europe by busking and by doing psychedelic illusion shows at at, at big festivals goodness me yeah yeah and that was it was there was there's some doc there's some sure, stuff on youtube as well yeah i'm sure that was good crack oh yeah there, there was there was some serious laughter to be had for sure you know and 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 you know at one stage like you got to be careful with that stuff because you can actually stop the dance floor if yeah. it if it's in if it's if it's enticing enough, if it's weird enough, people will stop dancing. It's not really what you want. Are you describing your guys' DJ sets? <laughs> <laughs> At the time, yeah, <laughs> playing off that. <laughs> so what what was Brixton like in the 90s? I mean, I've got an idea from history, but I don't speak to that many people who are actually there. I mean, for me, it was fleeting anyway. But, you know, it was rough. You know, like, uh, um, like I remember... I remember getting called a batty boy by, um, right. by you know, because I, I was wearing kind of crazy psychedelic clothing and, and like tights and, and ninja shoes, you know, with the jukatabe, the, the the with the toe and you know, like ninja boots, like the the Japanese construction worker boots, you know, and and, and you know, I had like dreadlocks down to my shoulder blades and you know, it just looked weird enough to be you know called names, you know. You kind of just have to have your wits about you in those places, you know. 
Electric Avenue, you know, like uh, you know, Azadi Grants, yeah, immortalised. 2002, 2003, we had friends live there. And it was cool. It was still dangerous. Mm. You, you, you had to keep your wits about your butt. You, Brixton, that, Brixton was, was cool like, and is still cool. It's not you like know? you walk out of the It's still cool, but here. less dangerous now. Yeah. See, see, the, the, there isn't, I don't have a sense of danger there anymore. I wasn't, we weren't particularly worried when we were there. You know, it was, it was like, it was alive. You know, it had that feeling of one of those places, like actually, you know, and multicultural. You know, there's a lot of there is a lot of um, Caribbean um, people there, and and that affects the culture, and and they've got like a lot of reasons, justifiable reasons to have attitude. You know, like the the history of Brixton and the riots and all that kind of care. And there's something that people should educate themselves on if they don't know. You know, that was some serious shit. There's a Kiwi teacher died in that right. A yeah. primary school teacher. Yeah, the British police force really had to take a look at itself. Um, and, you know, we had a bit of a Black Lives Matter moment in, when was it, 1981? Mm. Um, really does. And, mm. and, you know, the people were already pretty angry about the stop and search of black men. And then there was this catalyst. I think it was in Brixton itself, wasn't that the first yeah, riot? Some guy yeah. died in a yeah. There was the, the, in a taxi. Yeah, or... you look at the story about how that happened. Actually, it was quite convoluted, and and you know, yeah, it's a, and it's a funny story as well. But yeah, the police didn't necessarily do anything wrong immediately, but it was people's reaction to it, and then yeah. the police's overreaction to that, which yeah. led it to being so. Horrific. A tinderbox. And, yeah. and Britain is very good at tinderboxes, which for the most part is useful for creative culture, but not when we're talking about riots. Yeah. Things can spread like anything. Yeah. Um, but it is still it's still that that part of London. I mean, at the moment, the you know Peck, Peckham became extremely cool ten or fifteen years ago, and even that's been gentrified. Um, but it is they are still very interesting places to mm. go. Do you remember the Brixton dollar when the last recession hit and um, the Brixton markets, Electric Avenue, they just they, they just printed their own money Did and they? were like, "We'll just trade. We can trade between each other. We need food." Brilliant. And they just created their own brilliant Brixton dollar. No, no, I don't yeah. remember that. You so, you haven't checked out like um, the history of dance music in Jamaica. Have you read? Have you read like um, fleeting base culture when reggae was king? I'm actually not from Jamaica. That. I don't know if you guys have figured that out. Um, <laughs> don't let this fool you. And so I'm very well versed with the history of Jamaica. Go ask me any question. So, um, like straight out of the Second World War, they were having dance parties on the beach, right? It's the, the first, the first, the first big sound systems were built in Jamaica. The first three-phase equaliser was built so they could run big speakers. First the, remixes came the, out of Jamaica. The concept of fat beats and big... Yeah, indeed. Mm. Um, and that spread to South London, mm. particularly. We are, we owe that culture a lot. Te yeah. Techno owes it massively. And, uh, also, Manchester, um, you know, the, at, at a similar time as, as this stuff was going on, um, Manchester is heralded for the Hacienda and various nightclubs like that. But the Moss Side estate yeah. was big sound system culture. And for the most part, certainly history says, the white guys embraced it very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. There wasn't, it wasn't as racially divided as, as people may think. 
according to history. I've got, I've got mates who actually grew up in Moss Side, and and uh, um, and they they talk about their those early days like as being glory days, you know. And it sounds like the hacienda was a mixed bag as well, but also like you know like amazing to be part of. And yeah, and then you, then you've got like um, uh, Northern Soul. Right. Yeah. Like that, this is I've read a book about Northern Soul and, and it basically started with every if you're into dance music, everything you think you're doing and you think you're being a rebel and you're the first to do it. Yeah. I've done countless times by like every culture. Yeah. And this is Northern Soul story. And I was yeah. like, fuck, that's a great introduction. Yeah. 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 Which is one. That's one of the things like I re, went going back and rereading the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Like I said, I think is essential reading for people who put on parties and, and to look at how that they developed those electric Kool-Aid acid tests, the human beings that, and what they were doing, you know, because there's, there's, Tom Wolfe really nails it sometimes, you know, it's quite. So, all right, so what, so what would you say that were your main learnings from that? Um, well, from that book? Yeah. Um, well, there's these concepts that, like, we, we feel, um, at the at the event, well, heck, there's a few things. One of them is that that he he writes about very well this feeling of when everything syncs up and everyone seems like the the part of something and it gets elevated beyond a normal experience, where we feel like we're all in the same vibe, we're thinking the same things, we're all actually doing something, and it kind of goes. He nails writing about that one particular time, and there's some science to come to support that now. It's yeah. about the way that the way that our brain waves interact, the way that we fall into sync, the way that we actually we all kind of f- fall into sympathetic vibration with the music and with each other. So we and we actually are feeling and experiencing the same things, but it's it it we thought it was just in our mind. So the Coltrane calls it the love supreme and it's basically but this here's the argument for it. It's it's natural human nature. And so we get it from dance floors mm. uh and it's our community and and we're very lucky that we can we we can go lose ourselves, laugh with our friends, take drugs some people, not myself, um, that are now known to help with depression and addiction problems, mm. um, laugh with their friends, share everything, and that's your religion. But religion has get that. that as well. Yeah. Re- re- that's why religious people religious people are going to church because they want to be part of something. Yeah. They find that same thing, yeah. and it's that feeling of oneness when they're when they're wherever they are. Yeah, yeah it's human human nature. But, and that's the, and that's the best. That's the best fucking feeling. Uh, but it's fleeting, man. Like you can chase it, and it can. It can mm. It's not always a good thing. Yeah. There, there are a few different layers to this. Um, that you and Pearson did quite an interesting book about this. Remember you and Pearson? I know the yeah. name. Yeah, British DJ producer, mm. super intellectual, sort of has quite an academic standpoint. It's not last night a DJ saved my life. Uh, no, no, that's Bill Brewster. Bill Brewster, yeah. Um, but he, but in his book, he also he said that. It so happens that bass frequencies and the repetition yeah. of beats. Yep. This is proven by modern science as as well that that can accentuate mm. this feeling of oneness. Yeah. And so Wolf was right, but he didn't know so much about the, the bass science. frequencies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there's even more reason why we do what yeah, we do. Exactly, and that, that's <laughs> the compulsion, and like you feel it when you've actually experienced it. It's 
very hard to let it go, right? But also, I, trying to explain it, you can't explain it. Like, you try and... Uh, well, I, I would like to think we've done a decent job. Yeah, but, but it's also... That, that thing can be heartbreaking, because the thing... That's, that was the thing about lockdowns that broke my heart, where it was like, we were... We were at the beginning of the year, we were all one on the dance floor. And then whatever angle you took on it, whether you believed it was real or not, or whatever... Um, we should have all still been one on the dance floor looking after you. And it was just a massive divide. Mm. And it was like a wake-up call. We're not all one on the dance floor. It's a pretend thing sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It really it really fucked me up. That was the biggest thing that fucked me up about um, the lockdowns and stuff. Uh, it was heartbreaking. Uh, and I found it really fucking hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I Especially with all the effort. And you guys know me. Like all the effort and love that I do put into this. And people's future. Well, not people's futures. I have nothing to do with people's futures. But like uh, we, we work very hard on this and 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 um talent and nurturing and nurturing our music scene and because it's important but it felt like that music scene wasn't couldn't actually give a fuck about mm. me i mean i i'm gonna challenge you a little bit there i think it is important yeah i, I think those. i are, do as well yeah, yeah. I, I do think it's I, important I, I think, as well, I, think I think it's important at the level of there is a war on culture going on and like we have we get dictated to what what our expectations should be you know we we what what having a beach fit body is what um you know how we're expected to behave uh, um by marketing by politics by education and it's not really doing us a lot of favors when you look at the state of the world that we're in we need Remedies. We need other ways of freeing human imagination to solve our biggest problems and creating spaces where people can actually have the freedom to express themselves is really important. You know, it's, I, I, used to, I used to actually kind of go, wow, what am I doing with my life? I'm, I you know, spent so long dedicating, decades dedicating myself to these, uh, these experiences, these these musical events and it's like is it, is it a frippery and I've come to the conclusion that actually no it's actually really important you know it's like it's 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 not only a release valve for people but it is a potential it's the potential to create other ways of of looking at the world that we're not getting through mainstream culture so and and the the, the vehement way that you said war on culture made it sound like you feel more beleaguered by the war on culture now than in previous times actually like, it's, a it's just threat. A, it's, oh, it's just, just as strong yeah right. and it's, it's been just, there it was it, ever thus it's been there it's been there right through the whole time that i've been putting on events there was it was an actual move to try to generate um, more of a scene across this country which is one of the reasons we carried on doing parties in the middle of the South Island because we could draw people from from the South, draw people from the North and create more of a cohesive scene. So I'd already seen that scene and how that worked with the McGillicuddy Serious Party. Right? So this is like when I was in Hamilton in my, at 18, 19, 20, and I was studying, I was at art school studying to be a jeweler and painting, studying to paint. I, got introduced to this group of people who emphasized fun in their lives and they they but they used they used fun as a way of poking 
the mainstream culture, poking main fun at mainstream politics. You know, so they like it needs doing. Yeah, and you know, so they would have like uh, um, like theatrical protests where at one stage we got covered in mud. Like so, in Hamilton City, the the council had put this this blue line down the main pavement. Um, that was that was to represent the, the Waikato River. The Waikato River is not a clean blue river. It's one of the most polluted bodies of water in this country. You can't swim in it and stay healthy. And so what we, the, the like, I was part of the mud covering. I wasn't a slitherer, but there were, there were <laughs> oh, of course not. <laughs> yeah, we had buckets of mud, and we were covering people who were essentially nude, except for like a, a pair of undies, and covering them mud and mud, and they slithered up the um, up the the blue river, you know, to protest it, you know. And <laughs> at, at one stage, there was they actually we had um, aliens landing in, in um, Garden Place because the council were taking it away from being a green space and putting it more into a built space. And so the aliens came and stole Garden Place. You know, there's all this wacky shit. And I watched the way that they did it. And they would have like these kind of gatherings up and down the country and they were connected. These, these kind of this social scene, they were connected. And I was like, fuck, these, these guys have got cohesion. And we needed, I felt like we needed that in, our, in another realm as well. And that was, that was kind of one of the reasons that I did what I did and the way we did it. So this kind of this kind of brings me to the through point of all this podcast is which is uh, it's the repeating question of what the fuck happened in the mid two thousands because uh, when I left for the UK there was a thriving scene which I wasn't a part of there were festivals in the city every weekend New Zealand on air um, there were twenty four clubs in the K Road uh, area alone mm. thriving clubs uh, and then came back and it was pretty pretty. Yeah. and so there's a lot we, everyone I think it's a number of things the the drugs the early closing the loss of monetary and music but uh, yeah I feel like we're on the edge of making the same mistakes again mm. and and we're trying this is the whole thing with this is to get a view for me personally to get a view on uh, what happened and let's not make the same mistakes again yeah I mean, so uh, there, there were a lot of conditions that kind of led to it being a bit of an explosion in in that music culture and dance, like you know, in the in the clubs, the um, the dancing in the streets stuff that was put on, um, you know, and and the and and the outdoor events, you know, the 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 paid ones and then the free ones that were you know happening, the bush doffs, if you like. And, but there were free ones in all the main parks in the city. Yeah, yeah. And there were thousands of people. Yeah. So, so at the time, like, so we were, it was either right before or right in the middle of when Helen Clark was the um, Minister for the Arts, Prime Minister and Minister for the Arts. Beautiful woman. There was a lot of, there was a lot of support for artistic culture at the time. And, and so there's a bit of a, um, bit of a, a parameter shift you know where so in Auckland City was um, spending money to support the arts as well then we have a government change and of course the budget changes and which is what's happened just what, now yeah and uh, um, and 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 as a result you get people having to shift and change what they're doing you know 
and it, it, it's not there's never going to be just one thing it's kind of it's always a bit of a perfect storm there's all these conditions that come in to deal with it right so beyond the political side of it what, what are the other conditions do you think I think I think we lost I think we lost a lot of creatives at that time too. Brain drain. Going yeah overseas yeah. like uh, um, I know a lot of people went to Australia. Exhibit A. Mm-hmm. Ah, London myself, yeah, but yeah, London, I was part of brain drain. I, I mean, like, you were a big creative loss in the mid two thousands. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> But it's, it was, but it, but it it's was a serious an, point. There was an Ozzy-sized hole in the top there, <laughs> I don't think so. I think that was a very small hole, and I filled it very well coming back. Mm. Uh, yeah, but but it but yeah, it was a the, the brain drain was like it, it, on the flip side. It is a good thing because people go overseas, get a, another get set of experience, a, get, yeah. discover all this music, come back, and then bring that part mm. of culture back to New Zealand. Yeah. But I mean, like from my from my perspective, the party never stopped. Like um, you know, it's just. So at the time, so what, what's the time frame you're talking about exactly? Kind of like it was around 2005 to 2012. I don't, I don't know. Like I, left in, I left in the two, end of 2002 and I got back in 2012, 13, mm. and it was pretty bad. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, well, and you've also however, got... However, don't, don't take this the wrong way, people. There were people out there fighting the fight and doing good things. Uh, it just... The whole thing with the underground is, pe- people think that the underground isn't for everyone. It's not. It's you've got to dig for it. That's yeah. what makes it fucking cool. And people think that the underground shouldn't make money and shouldn't shouldn't make people a living. And it's like that's that's not what it is. It, it's it's for everyone. You just have to dig for it. And I feel like in the early two thousands, it was a industry and a culture, and it was paying people's rent. And then when I got back, it wasn't. Across the board, musically, festival-wise, culture-wise, uh, gigs-wise. Sometime around then was when Normanby Road stopped as well. So, like, it was it, it turned into a into a monthly and then weekly venue f- around ninety eight, ninety nine. It was still going two thousand, and then. So explain what Normanby Road was. Normanby Road was a a, um, a warehouse venue that was at the base of Mount Eden, kind of along the main road from the main entrance to Mount Eden Prison. And I lived when I came back from travelling with, with the with the micro psychedelic circus. Um, I I landed there. Ended up living there with a few others, and uh, and we we kind of there was already a party place, but we cleared it out, turned it into a dance floor. My bedroom was the DJ booth, and uh, um and the, and we started putting on parties once a month and then once a week to pay the rent, and it was a permanent um uh, kind of art studio for us. We constantly working on the paintings, constantly working in the structure of the building, you know, building stuff into it putting nets in the roof and kind of working on the lights and getting little crystals for laser to hit and all that kind of stuff. And it fostered a bit, it fostered a community. Splore grew out of Normanby Road. And and a lot of outdoor parties happened based on the people that were coming there and, and kind of working together and then working out how to do it. And, um, the, you know, Barton and Hayden, uh, you know, uh, Antics, they had a... They, they had a um, uh, 
great kind of audience to test their stuff out at, at Normanby Road. I'm sure that that venue influenced Yeah, they've talked about it. They, we, they, we've got them in on um, Sunday to talk about that a bit bit more as well. Mm. Uh, and I remember them saying pe- people couldn't mix. It was a place, it was like where dance music started in Auckland, but people, there was no mixing. No one knew how to fucking do it. Uh, I don't know how true that is. I would is. have to argue would differently argue as, actually, as, as being one of the resident DJs here. That, like, <laughs> so yeah, there was definitely no mixing there. <laughs> um, right, yeah. okay, so, so Normanby Road, you know, eventually went the journey. What, yeah. What else was going on? Yeah, so I mean, that, that, like, so that, that kind of collapsed at some point. There was there were uh, um, uh, there were uh, some crews doing their own record labels who were doing um, uh, outdoor events and kind of being a little bit cagey about names and stuff here. Um, and at the same time, there was a uh, um, an explosion of meth, and the scene got really messy. And that changes things, you know. Like you introduce something like that, and people will, people will, change. But a number of those factors, um, those events, they, they've had many, many years to dissipate. So let's bring it to the present day. The scene is not particularly messy. We have different people, surely fighting a good fight, who are doing interesting, creative stuff. And yet Owen and crew, who I've got to know over here, keep lamenting the fact that it's not as good as it was. No, it's not that it wasn't as good as it was. I, I argue it's better now. Quality of music's better. Quality of production's better. Production's better. There's more. The, it's not that. It's that, it's that we... Again... You guys know my personal mission, which is to get people paid for what they're worth. Mm. And we were on the right trajectory. And something happened. Uh, and and this is the thing. If, I, if I'm if i on that path as, as the new Jesus Christ trying to get everyone paid for their work, like, I need to know what that was so that we don't do it, do yeah. it again. I think part of it is like... Um... Uh, readily, readily accessibility to to DJing. It used to be a lot harder <laughs> to get in there. You know, when you were having the mix with vinyl, you know, learning to beat match. There's a there's a like either either you're like gifted and it just no problem at all. But learning to beat match is a steep learning curve. You have to dedicate a lot of time to it, and you actually it's expensive to get two turntables. You know, and so. The democratization of DJing with technology, you know, even when it was just CDJs and being able to burn a CD and go and put it in and play it, meant it became a lot easier for people to become DJs. So there was a lot more people out there doing it. So why are there a not good more? Thing. Why are there it's not a, more events? It's a, it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, we've got such a small culture. We're such a creative community, but we've got in this country, there's a lot of there's a like the percentage of artists to, to I really like to know what the stats are actually, but there's so many artists here, so many yeah, creative but we're people. We're getting off track. Like no, no, no. no it's it's it, I don't think it is. If it, like the the we've got an oversupply, you know. So like this this summer, there's been t- so many gigs yeah, to go. Yeah, it is oversaturated. oversaturated. That, that is part of what's happening now, but it, that's that's I don't think that's what happened back back in the. Back then, I don't no, think so, it is either. Uh, yeah. the, the, the 
council thing would have been part of it, a big part of it. Um, but it, it like it doesn't just go, mistake. Put it this way. Everywhere else in the world where it was a part of culture has thrived and it's become a firm part of culture. And for some reason in New Zealand, uh, it went away and drum and bass took over. And, and there's, there's... So we're talking about sort of house slash techno-led DJ culture here. Yes, right. yes. and that industry and, and, and the trajectory it was on, but not just that, uh, the, the culture surrounding it, which was free parties and parks. Um, big events like big events with multiple DJs like uh, and it, and it, and the argument I, I never accept I get frustrated with it when it's like but we're a small country and our scene is small it's like explore sell out without having a lineup they've done something right and and it works and someone did something wrong and I'm looking for that person to blame <laughs> And so, here it's spoiled down to it. it is a witch hunt. Oh shit, now I and see why you've got me yep. here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't me, Ozzy. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is like, it's, it, I think it's a fucking interesting question. It might not be to other people. Um, I find it very interesting that it's like my house and techno journey came from overseas, and so I come back in it. And it's looking at it with mm. fresh, fresh eyes. Whereas the people that were here the whole time was like, well, nothing really happened. It just kind of, yeah, it just moved into different stuff. But it's like, <clears throat> it was a thriving culture, party culture. Not even party, can't even call it a party culture. Yes, it was a party culture, but all the things in the parks were family orientated. It yeah. was families going out to enjoy music. Yeah, yeah no, I totally, I, I, I went to a lot of them. Um, and and yeah, and I, I think it's political willingness. I mean, that like that our current mayor in Auckland is is going to slash Fuck, he's doing everything job, everything Jesus out of, out of the arts. It's you know like, like people are are running from that organisation now. You know, it's it's we're we're in for a grim time for the creative community in this in this city. And you know, part of part of it was like that same time frame. Where you know the, there's there's money disappearing out of the arts, same thing, and then the gentrification of inner city. You know, you've got lo- lots more people moving back into the city, and so the clubs that were able to run without disturbing people now have noise complaints, and and is, and, which, and the council's not prioritising yeah. the entertainment world; they're prioritising the individual. Who's which is complaining. fucking disgusting, and which is why Auckland needs a nights are like like London, which is. To, you can't, you can't, you can't move to somewhere which is a hub of activity, and knowing it's a hub of activity, and then moan because there's too much noise. It's it, yeah, it's, just, it's just, a consistent I mean, story. To, to be, it is a consistent story in cities around the world. You know, London has these battles all the time, but London finds ways for there to be certain areas that are that are up and coming now. Walthamstow and Leighton, a lot of stuff going on there, which would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. Mm. When stuff started kicking off in Peckham 10, 15 years ago, would have been unthinkable 10 years before that. It would appear this isn't quite happening in Auckland, that gentrification will happen everywhere, but maybe there has not been the move to empower other areas. Gentrification doesn't work in Auckland because of the trusts. We have a trust in West Auckland, which is the areas which are still 
probably not even now, but it's been affordable. And so Titarangi, Titarangi, we moved there because it was had a vibe and it was just affordable and we were young professionals. But you're not allowed to open a bar there. And, and this, is what, this is what drives me insane with Auckland. It was like, lower, cl- close the club hours, lower the drinking limit to two hours, but you're not allowed to open a bar with without having 10 pokey machines in it near your home it's just fucking backwards and the trust takes says it gives back to the community it does fuck all it's a monopoly they take so much money and and it, and it stops culture and it stops gentrification so jamie mr counterculture do you, do you agree with that statement <laughs> i'm not a fan of the trusts but um uh you know i don't know that it would have necessarily worked out any better if they hadn't have been there. I do, I um, I do think that that Auckland should do things differently. In um, Munich, there was this. They set up a uh, um, like a an entertainment district, like in a, in a, like the side of an industrial area, and with the um, you know so close to trains and buses. And it was a noisy area, you know, and and just in the knowledge that it wasn't going to get shut down, you know, and that like that there's a, there was this, we, we we did this show actually with um, Sven Veith. Um we ended up doing a, um, some like uh, performance for for, for Sven Veith, which is you know that's a nice kind of little yeah tick in the memory, but it, it was <laughs> he's a, a bit of a character, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is. He's I a, thought you were going to say something a, else, but getting with Sven right then. <laughs> No, he's a he's a proper performer, oh, and 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 a and a you know original originator of yeah, the scene, maybe. you know, like he like his his influence on on modern dance music was, yeah, yeah. was huge. He's proper, mm. right? So the thing with that is we've tried to do that, and so, and there's certain individuals that have been very successful with doing that. Logan Baker, for one, mm. uh, like we've recognised as a as a as a culture that we have a venue issue in the city. Uh, there's a there's a no one wants to go in the city because of the the violence and the and the binge drinking and so we tried to push out into industrial areas and it got shut down pretty quickly mm. uh you you can't throw anything properly there because you can't get a liquor license and the hoops you have to jump through to get a liquor license bleeds into fire restrictions for warehouses and getting that is massive money so it's like this is what frustrates me is it's like we're trying to fix something but you come up against we're trying to do the right thing and you come up against people that don't see it that way or, or trying to make money for the wrong I, I don't know it's, this is it's fucking frustrating I can tell you that much I would like to end this conversation with some optimism though right so fuck that let's so, go yeah. down, <laughs> down. So, so what are the things that give you hope for the next phase of creativity, I've been watching. I've been watching a younger generation step into the um, into the roles that are that are that are you know that me and my cohort have been doing for the last thirty years. And there's a lot of good people doing a lot of really interesting things. You know, there's a group in Christchurch called the Exchange, and they they are building. They are co-creating these astounding events that are um, called Mary Hush and they're, they're like these story-led um, events that are that have like 
are based in creativity and and in, in people f- kind of feeling something special, you know. And it, there's there are there are new things happening. There are new art movements coming about. There are new sounds. There are new things being developed. And and it will always find a way. You know, we're going to continue to have parties. We're going to continue to have outdoor events. And we're going to you know people will continue to do it. You know, it's just like we just need to hold the door open to let it happen as much as we can. I'm tired of holding the fucking door open, Jamie. Can you fucking stick a wedge under it or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, last question. Oh. So change tech. I see you wearing a nice pair of Doc Martens. You're a dapper man. <laughs> do you do you do you have a footwear of choice? Do you are you a man that runs one shoe for all occasion? Or are you a do you change style of footwear and brand? Um, yeah, I mean, like these, these, um, these docks are are um, uh, are color matched with the jacket I'm wearing, right? <laughs> uh, you know, um, I grew up. In I a... hate to tell you this, but your shoes are red and your jacket's blue, so there might be something. Go <laughs> <God>. on, <laughs> no, I grew up. I grew up with a father who was in the fashion industry, right? And it, it, I take some pleasure in 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 uh, um, in, in clothing and and in in, in, in you know um, the way that I look, and uh, I do run with a particular pair of shoes. The docks are a little bit different, but it's usually I uh, see so you've got the all stars. I always I've, I've someone told me once once you wear cons you'll never wear anything else, mm. and now I just have cons for every occasion. Mm-hmm. But mentally for me, it's this thing in my head where I'll run a nice shoe but it has to be very formal. Mm. But they have this thing in my head where it's like, I might end up dancing. And so I'm always like, <laughs> that's why I'm always like a cons because it's like it can be formal and I can end up in a sweaty club and you can just put them in the wash. Yeah. So that's my shoe story. I've, I found one particular pair of shoes. Like, I'm, I'm no, no, I was never really a sneaker guy. I was more of a, I was more of a boots guy. All, all through the 90s and 2000s, more of a boots guy. And then I found a pair of um, uh, sambas, you know, like the um, very dancey. And and when I, I I just put them on, and then I stopped noticing that I was wearing them. And then and, and then after that, it's just been that's what I that's what I buy. I know they're really comfortable for my feet, you know. And if I and I and you know you get a get one that's like a different colour or something, keep it looking a bit schmuck, then you can, then you can go out to the restaurant on them. You know? Yeah. I, I've given up. Um, um, I used to I used to rock the corporate world for about 15, 16 years. I'm really glad not to now, so I don't, I don't actually, I, I don't need to dress in that kind of formal way anymore. I'm quite comfortable being just casual. And on that note, on that note, <laughs> what a lovely two hours, two over two hours. A little bit less, uh, but we won't fall out about yeah. it. Um, brilliant. Thank you Thanks, so Jamie. much, Jamie. Good no work, worries. team. Lots of ground covered, lots of fun anecdotes. Thank you again. Most welcome. <laughs> Well, I think we got into the head of a very creative man, a philosophical man, and I think Jamie Larnock's European adventures in a psychedelic circus would make a heck of a podcast on its own. Um, But the most pressing matters I would like to discuss in our Summing Up Ozzy 
are DJs paying for their own tickets and the general barter culture of certain events. We touched on that with him. Um, and plus, I'd also like to address the, the classic where did it all go wrong on the Auckland scene debate. Um, but let's start with the first one. Why is it a problem for a DJ to sometimes basically play for free or for very little money? If they're having a good time, if they're making a weekend of it, so what? Well, here's my thoughts. Um, it depends what stage of your DJ career you're at. If you're at the start of the DJ career, it's part of the course. Everyone's trying to make a name for themselves. Um, but if you're five years in, ten years in... Uh, one, it's gonna it, it jades you. Go, paying to play, go, going to a go, going to a venue and getting paid one hundred and fifty dollars, but the bar tab was a hundred, and then it's seventy for a taxi home. You're paying to play, and it wears thin pretty quick, especially when you're buying gear and music. And I think I think sometimes um, venue owners forget how much money we actually spend on our craft. And we would happily do it. Most of us would fucking happily do it if we didn't have someone to play. It's that musical addiction. Um, but it's still, in my mind, we're uh, the, the and this is New Zealand. I can't say for overseas. Um, our, our artists as DJs are pretty undervalued. Yeah, but there are other scenarios here and Jamie outlined one of them where he said, well, the festival he was just at, the DJs are the same status as the chefs and that everyone gives something in order for the event to happen. You know, the kind of burner mentality. Yeah. That's, that's... if you do that once in a while, what, what, what's the harm in that? There's no harm in that. If that's what you, <coughs> that's what you want to do, if that, if that's what they're aiming to do. And, and again, this is my opinion. Your, your, your festival is your festival and your ethos is your ethos you're allowed to disagree with it this is the whole point of this this is to get different views and actually mm. talk about it instead of just yelling on facebook yeah but in my mind we're trying to we're trying to make spread the gospel make the scene bigger make it on an international scale where people are getting paid what they're worth and if you're playing for free and doing that sort of thing all the time it just devalues your worth if you if personally as a as a promoter if if you're at the top of your game and then you're charging us a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars and then next week you go and play for friends of ours for 200 one it hurts fucking feelings because we put a lot of a lot of effort into our artists we we try and help them we try and help them uh build their profile and and book them better better slots and get them to warm up for international DJs. So one, it hurts feelings and, and two, it hurts the bank. Um, now that shouldn't be our issue if they're worth that money, but I personally don't think you've got to value your worth and kind of, and kind of, there's always negotiations. Of course there is. You, you can negotiate about your accommodation or what you're getting out of it, your bar tab. But, but if you play constantly playing for free and then, and then coming along and asking to play for more money, like it's a, from a promoter side, it's a bit of a slap in the face. Again, this is just my opinion and my feelings when I'm promoting gigs. What people do for the burn and for um, those style of events, I can also see why they're trying to do that sort of thing. Okay, right, fair enough. 
so let's move on to the uh, where did it all go wrong? And today. again, maybe it didn't all go wrong. Maybe everything went right, and and I, I it's, it can't be rose-coloured glasses because I wasn't here. So, but, so what? Well, what? Hang on. So let's just recap what Jamie said. Right? He said Normanby Road collapsed. Meth ready accessibility to DJing, trusts not giving back to the community, gentrification and the council not encouraging other creative areas to replace them. I don't think any of that's particularly arguable, but what I want to flag here is the notion of oversaturation. You say there are too many events nowadays, and yet you also say that the scene isn't thriving like it was back in the day. But by certain measures, if you've got too much of something, doesn't that show growth? No, not if it's not paying your artists. Not if it's not... not uh, again, we've worked really hard over the last five years to get people paid. We started not paying people. We had to call in favours. You can't do that forever. But if you have... If you have too many gigs, and again, this is I'm only an Auckland promoter. This is only an Auckland problem. Uh, I don't know if this is what's happening in other cities, but um, when you have too many gigs, there's, and you're not doing the hard work to spread the scene and spread the gospel, um, and you have too many gigs, there's not enough people to pay to go to those gigs. Now, there's also the problem with the general public that the general public have a thing where you can't charge too much for a ticket but they want quality at their events but they're not willing to pay for that quality as soon as we start going over $60 um, people start moaning about the cost of tickets no matter the size of the international but we all know that to do like a lo-fi gig we have to pay artist quality sound system um, decor like it costs that side costs money so if you have too many gigs, there's only so much money to go around, especially in this climate. Um, it's oversaturation. Uh, and what about joining up more partnerships with other promoters? Yeah, well, we've always done that and always tried to do that. Um, it's my opinion from an outsider that this needs to happen yeah. more. Well, we've, in we've worked we've worked with m most people and starting to work with other people. So, from from our side, yeah, f fuck, it's what we've always done. Um, I think maybe that's a way of hedging it, putting two or three crews together that you know have their own crowds. But the, the problem that creep, the problem that creeps into this is most promoters are doing this to also boost their DJ career, and so you get crews together, and then there's just too many DJs for the lineup, and that's where it causes problems. Yeah, now true. it would be amazing if there were more promoters that were doing this, uh, and it sounds sounds against everything I'm saying for more profit because they would just be purely in it from a business perspective. I think sometimes with with all of us, the passion gets in the way and we can't see the forest or the trees and it's not always the best thing. Yeah, damn right. Although then again, um, it's partly this passion that's made us have these conversations at all. So that's something, you know, the, yeah, there's a, there's much to discuss on that. Um, yeah, Jamie, what a legend. We always have those chats over cups of tea and whatever. Um, so I knew that was going to be a good podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we could get him on again and just talk to him about the circus. Yeah. I think, I think that would be immense. Yeah. <laughs> right, anyway, we're done.